Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Our Next Guest Is. Hello and welcome to another Our Next Guest Is. This is a conversation where we meet the country's leading speakers and entertainers in the corporate and events world, and we meet the person behind the name. My name is Michael Pope, and I'm here with Carson White from Leading Voice. So Carson, who is our next guest? Our next guest is the co-founder of The Behaviour Report, and essentially helps smart people to be people smart. He's obsessed with human behavior, what drives beliefs, behaviors, and belonging, what makes us buy and buy in. His business acumen is equally matched by his quick wit, whether he's on stage, writing his blog, or in any of his numerous TV appearances. Rated in the top 25 C-suite speakers to watch by Meetings and Conventions USA, today he is here to explain what moves us, what drives us, what lifts us, and ultimately, why the hell we all buy so much crap we don't need? Our next guest is Dan Gregory. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Carson. Let's start on the important things. Why did I buy that beach chair off eBay at three o'clock in the morning when I don't even like the beach? Well, do you know what? I think the reason we buy everything is because it helps us be the kind of people we want to be. We actually buy into our sense of identity. So there's something about that beach chair mm-hmm. that uh, that offered a lifestyle promise that that you probably wanted to buy into, even though it, it wasn't you as a person. So given that, uh, just that brief explanation, Dan, how did you actually get into advertising? Because advertising is an absolute mystery for most people. Yeah, it, it is. And in fact, that was one of the uh, the premises behind the the Gruen transfer when we launched it, you know, Michael Denton decided that this was a conversation that Australia didn't know they wanted to have. Um, but my my journey to to advertising wasn't a linear one. I, I was um I was one of those kids that did really well at school in every subject, and consequently that made it hard to decide what to do for a living. Uh, you know, if you're good at woodwork, you become a carpenter. I didn't have a lot of direction. So I, uh, I actually started out doing an economics degree specialising in actuarial studies. And mm. so that was where my degree started. And I very quickly decided that wasn't the path for me and uh, and changed and started doing a, um, a communications degree with a base in psychology, sociology and philosophy. And, and my goal at that time was to be an editorial cartoonist because I was doing editorial cartoons for local newspapers at the time. And I... Over the course of the degree, I sort of discovered advertising. So this was at the time when Simon Reynolds' um, profile was really huge. You know, Simon, Simon with had, three eyes, is it, or four? Two eyes, two eyes yeah. <laughs> two eyes. <laughs> yeah, so Simon had done the, the Grim Reaper AIDS campaign, um, which came out when I was 16 and actually destroyed the sex life of any 16-year-old boy. Um <laughs> Yeah, I put it down to that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I've, I've, I've told him since that he's to blame. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that sort of opened up a whole range of, 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 I guess, creative and strategic options that made sense of of what my interests were. It was broad enough to hold my interest. Mm. And so that's that's really what I pursued. And then I, um, I graduated from university during the recession we had to have. Uh, which wasn't ideal. And I, I, my first job was taking complaints for Telstra. And I took that job just before Optus joined the market. So I took 100 abusive calls a day. Wow. Uh, but that was, that, was a good, uh, that was good motivation to get into my advertising career as quickly as I could. So it was a nonlinear path. 
So with those jobs and that training, you've always had an interest in what makes people tick and why we do the things we do. Oh, for sure. And I think it's because I'm not naturally that way inclined. You know, some people are very good at intuiting what other people are thinking. I'm not naturally highly empathetic or I don't naturally have a high emotional intelligence quotient. And I think what that did was it made me curious to understand why other people were reacting the way they were. So I think I've always had that interest. So was it that interest that propelled you into the stand-up comedy scene or was that just exploring something else that you were good at? I uh, started my advertising career and I, I started in a startup. So I got to help build an agency from the ground up. And in mm-hmm. fact, I became a partner in that business. But one of the things we did was we had a really uh, a really innovative culture. You know, we were very small. We we started with about, you know, between seven and 12 people in the first couple of years. And we were very open. We'd share our goals openly with each other, our professional and personal goals. Every Monday morning, we'd, we'd clear the decks with a meeting where we told the truth and and sort of, you know, got all of those arguments out of the way. Mm. And we even actually helped decide each other's salaries based on performance. So it really was a true 360. Everyone knew what everyone else was earning. It was a very open conversation. So it was a really, a really great open experiment in culture. Can, um, I, can I interrupt there just before you take me to the stand of comedy? That sounds yeah. like a really interesting culture to have in a company. Did it work? And are people still doing that kind of sharing today? It worked extraordinarily well, and we so oh. it was the virtual creative department. So we were a we were a hybrid business with no central office in 1993 or 1994, back when internet connection was still dial up. Yeah. So right. we all had fax machines, mobile phones. We had email addresses before anyone else did. I mean, we could only email each other, but that's essentially what <laughs> it was for. But it was bleeding edge, not leading edge. But a lot of what we did has sort of informed a lot of the. A lot of the cultures that I've helped build along the along along my career. Out of that experience, how did that translate into terms of you know moving into the next phase of what you did in terms of stand up comedy? Did you stay in that job uh, that partner for a while? It was a mix. So a part of sharing our goals openly was um, one of my goals was to try stand up comedy before I was thirty, and I, you know I shared that openly with the with the group. And the great thing about sharing your goals openly with a group of people you trust is they hold you accountable. Right. So about uh, three months before my 30th birthday, uh, one of my friends at the agency said, you're on stage in six weeks, start writing. And so I did my first open mic and um, I then I had my first professional gig two months later. And by the end of that year, I'd moved to to Europe and I was doing three and a half years of stand-up for that for that yeah the next three and a half years mm. I think there's a book in that well speaking of books there's three that you have uh, forever skills the 12 skills to future proof yourself your team and your kids shift the trends changing the way we shift perceptions people and products but this one could be so many people's biography selfish scared and stupid stop fighting human yeah. nature and increase your performance engagement and influence tell me what's written on the back of that to give me an understanding of what that book is the essence of the book is the fact that our our survival brain, the most primitive part of our brain, is what drives all of our initial decision-making. In other words, we're motivated by risk motivation, uh, self-interest, and a bias towards simplicity and ease. And, yeah, when we wrote that book, people were, you know, people basically said, wow, that, that seems really, really cynical. 
And then 2020 happened with the pandemic and people called us up and said, you really need to re-release that book because mm. all of the behavior is showing up. But that's what it's really about is, again, it's not a judgment of anyone in particular. It's actually about the fact that we're all selfish, scared and stupid. And that's actually how we feel to the world. And unless you're able to create safety, self-interest and and a simple path for me to, in which to act, I'm unlikely to buy into what you're wanting me to do. Mm, okay. But before we take you to, to your speaking uh, engagements and that transition from stand up and in the office to in front of a thousand people, I love the line that Carson introduced you with. You help smart people to be people smart. Dig deeper into that for us. I think one of the things we've found is that a lot of technically smart people aren't necessarily people smart. And in fact, what we find is really, really successful professionals rise up through the ranks and all of a sudden have to become leaders or have to become rainmakers for the business. And they've got great technical skills, but they've got no people skills. They lack, uh, you know, an ability to communicate, to engage, to persuade, to influence. And that's really the opportunity that we've seen. I mean, I'd, I'd actually like to be in the business of making stupid people's lives more miserable, if I'm being honest, <laughs> yeah. but I haven't found a way to monetize that yet. So we've decided to make smart people, people smart. You touched on influence there, Dan. You say we're all in the business of influence. What do you mean by that? Well, I think we all are. Like if you're a parent, you're selling bedtime and broccoli. If you've got a team, you're sort of influencing <laughs> them. If you're if you're advocating for any kind of social change, you're looking to to influence your community and and you know key stakeholders and 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 even political um, forces. If you never don't think of yourself as being in sales, you're you're still definitely in influence. And I think influence is influence is one of those words that's often associated with manipulation. And I think that's that's a false association. It's more about how do you. Um, how do you move people to a shared sense of understanding and how do you move them to a willingness to take action? That's that's really what influence is, is all about. Can all of us be moved in that direction? Is it, is it hard to get someone to buy something they don't want to buy or buy into something they don't really believe I, I, at their core? Do you know, I think it's it's more about, so, so I think influence is fundamentally about a couple of things, but mostly it's about aligning value with values. So in other words, the more I understand about you, the greater influence I'm able to have with you. It's very, very difficult to sell someone on a new idea or to sell them something that they don't want. But if you link that new idea or you link that product to what they already care about and you demonstrate that it helps them achieve more of what they care about, then that's when you can be really influential. You're very much, obviously, as I said in the introduction around behaviour and understanding people's behaviours and what drives behaviours. Over the last, you know, pre-COVID, post-COVID worlds, what's been the single biggest behavioural change you've seen in consumers? Wow, that's a really big question. I think I think the the laggards have been driven to technology. If you know, if I think about, um, you know, my dad and mum are eighty nine and eighty two. And they were, you know, they were very much the laggards of technology, you know, didn't use a mobile phone. But all of a sudden, you know, they had to, you know, to stay in touch with their grandkids. So it forced them onto FaceTime. It forced them onto Zoom. Um, and uh, and I think I've seen a lot of that, you know, that those those people who had resisted internet banking or internet shopping or, or any kind of internet activity have sort of really... Um, had to embrace that. So I think that that's really, really changed. And, and, and again, I'm sure 
you know, anyone who's had to explain over the phone to an elderly relative how to use technology understands how painful that transition was. Mm. You know, I mean, I've certainly had, you know, phone calls with my mum and dad that, you know, had me longing to write their eulogies. But um, <laughs> absolutely. It's, uh, it's it's re that's that's probably been the biggest shift, and I think yeah. the other thing is we've had a period of of values evaluation. In other words, we've decided what's really important in our lives. You know, people have changed where they live. They've changed the way they work. They've changed the work that they are prepared to do. And I think that that's been a really, I don't think we've seen the end of that. I think we're still in the middle of that values evaluation. And that's going to change the marketplace, both for consumers and for employers quite a lot. I really recognise what you're saying about the technology. Carson was texting me on his Blueberry the other day, and I said... <laughs> Yeah, good on you. Um, so, Dan, a successful business person with startups and other businesses, studied in psychology, experience on the stage as a stand-up comedian. When did all of that come together and you felt, oh, I've got a message that I can spread to the greater population, and so the corporate presenting work started? Tell us about that transition. Again, it was a really nonlinear path. I don't know if this is true for everyone, but my life only makes sense in retrospect. It no, made absolutely. no sense going forward. Yeah, yeah. I'd had this this advertising career and then I'd done the stand-up comedy thing and I'd come back and I was working in advertising again. So my business partner, Kieran Flanagan, and I have been working together for about 30 years now. And so she was part of that original startup and I was working with her again. And people would say to me, oh, Dan, you've got this business career, but you're also a stand-up comedian. Can you come and give a speech at this conference we've got? I know a few people just ask. And so I showed up and initially I found it really difficult because I, you know, the laugh rate in stand-up comedy is a laugh every 10 to 15 seconds. And I thought, oh, I've got to write a whole new half an hour for this speech <laughs> or an hour. <laughs> and uh, and I my expectations were incorrect. And so I showed up and I got, I'd give these speeches and I'd do really well and I'd be sitting backstage with some of the other speakers, I had that moment where I was like that kid in Meet the Millers where I just looked at everyone else and went, you guys are being paid? <laughs> and and I didn't realise that it was a profession. You know, right. it was just something that I kind of fell into. Did those speakers get together and kind of work out what you should get paid on that occasion? No, I think I think they were. I think uh, to be honest, I, I think I played it like, oh yeah, I'm being paid too. You know, <laughs> not, not, not giving the not giving the game away. That that was really what started. And then I was on the the first episode of the Gruen transfer, and and Gruen hit, and sort of the invitation started hmm. ramping up. And that was really the transition. And what I realised was I was good at taking dry business content infusing it with humour and making it really practical and useful. Your website, The Behaviour Report, that's tbr.news, is really complex and complete with all the kind of work you offer. And one that stood out to me that I don't think we've had in another one of our guests is your love of debate. It mentions that you're very happy to take on a uh, perhaps a, a different view that you may hold yourself just to get the noise happening in the room. Is that right? Well, that's a that's the great thing I think about debate is you actually get to test the parameters of an issue. And you know, it's sometimes you know, Kieran and I are asked to debate each other, or I might be asked to debate. Typically, it's someone else with a comedy background, someone like a Gene Kitson or a Muddy Wilson or a James O'Loughlin. I think what it does is it allows people to explore those extremes without being offended. Mm. because it's the debate format. So, for instance, you know, I've done topics 
you know, for Macquarie Bank on like uh, the world is out of control and there's nothing we can do about it. You know, and I did that with Gene Kitson and Gene argued that there was something that we could do about it. But those kind of topics that are either highly charged or challenging or people are a little bit one-sided on, I find a debate really useful for, for testing those. The other thing is it's a really great energy builder in an audience. So if you've got a long conference over a couple of days, you know, having something other than just another lecture, you know, infuses a bit more energy into the conference. Actually, that was going to be my next question. If I was a, a conference organiser or a client listening to this podcast right now, um, why would I put a debate into my conference program? I think you just answered that. But is there anything else you'd like to add that, uh, you know, as a, as a key selling point to someone there to put a debate in their program? What it does is, and there's there's been a number of topics. I, I quite often get the, um, you know, a topic that might be a little bit hard. So, you know, sometimes I've been asked to deliver to an audience what's colloquially known as a shit sandwich. Like there's a bad bit of news that the client will want me to deliver, but they want it not to kill their team. Please and put so strawberry I'll, jam all over it. Yeah. So I'll sort of lift them up, deliver the news, let them drop and then lift them up again so they leave on a high. And I think a debate has the capacity to do that as well, or even to challenge something that they're there might be some uh, resistance around or fear about. So, for instance, if if someone said, oh, we're going to mandate COVID vaccines, you might have an, a debate on should COVID vaccines be mandatory or not. Or even for something like, I've done it for cybersecurity, you know, should the government have more control over cybersecurity or should it be more commercial? So even those kind of things can be an interesting thing to play out in a debate. So beyond debates, what else might someone expect when Dan Gregory is on the bill? What kind of offerings do you do you put forward? Well, quite often I'm given what I call the defibrillator set. So the morning after an awards night or just after a high-carb <laughs> lunch or just after the CFO's delivered three hours of compliance lecture. So in other words, they need me to deliver some content, but they also need it to have humour and uplift and to yeah. get people, bring people back to life, essentially, hence the defibrillator. Yeah. Um, so I think that's what I, I do. I, th I think that's when I do my best work is, you know, infusing content with humour. And I'm, I'm very much about behavioural insights. You know, what drives us? What's driving us at the moment? What are the social trends and the motivation science? of the moment that's influencing the way we make decisions, what makes us want to join, what makes us, you know, what helps us build culture as well. Do you always tailor your keynote to, uh, to a particular subject matter? Um, or how do you find that works for your clients? Or how do you, how do you deliver uh, your presentations? I do, and it's a terrible idea. Um, so what, one of the problems with tailoring is it makes remembering the speech you're giving really difficult. <laughs> yeah, um, I've got I've got other friends in the speaking business who have like three off the rack keynotes, and then they kind of you know it's which one do you get, and that seems far more intelligent in retrospect. <laughs> but I do try to tailor what I do to make sure that it it resonates with the audience, and I, I'm really open to working with my clients as well. I just think it gives a better result, and even even at the point of delivery. I find a lot of speakers don't like doing Q&A, but I really love it because mm. I think Q&A allows people to ask clarifying questions so that they can anchor what you've 
shared with them in their own world. So I find that, I think that's really important. So that's a very long answer for do I tailor or not. Um, but I think that's that's my justification for it. You know, obviously there's stuff that you that's universally applicable, but yeah. then I think there are certain social trends that affect particular industries and not others, and there are certain needs that particular workforces require and, and some may not. That's so important to make those links between the audience and the person on stage. And by opening yourself up to Q&A is one of the best ways. And clearly you'd be able to wing it because of that great experience you had in the early days doing stand-up. You started by modestly saying, I was good at everything. And I reckon that broad scope of life would be perfect for you to then bring to the stage for all kinds of different clients, whether they're in finance or, or small business or you know hardware or whatever you like thanks for your time today it's it's great to meet you and hear someone who has spent so much time working with smart people giving us the people smarts uh, about what we do why we do it all the best i look forward to introducing you on stage one day dan thanks michael thanks carson and if you want to see one of the most fascinating speakers in australia but also one of the most entertaining go to his website the behavior report which is www.tbr.news You've been listening to Carson White from Leading Voice and your MC Michael Pope with Our Next Guest Is. More guests can be found through iTunes or just visit www.ournextguestis.com.au. But until next time, let's take a break. Hold up. 